listeners, readers, welcome back to this Foxed Page uh, lecture on Joan Didion's incredible and supremely important The White Album. This is section two of the, of the three-part lectures, so if you skipped one, you might want to go back and listen. Uh, today we're going to be diving further into The White Album, the book, by taking a very close look at The White Album, the essay, not to be confused with The White Album by the Beatles. Okay, so the White Album is, is concerned with things that happened between 1968 and 1978. Uh, and it what we're going to do is dive in again to, to page 11. So yesterday we talked uh, about, not yesterday, in the last session, we talked about Joan Didion's desire as a, uh, as a writer to make sense of things. And she gave a couple of examples. So down at the bottom of page 11 here, she says, we live entirely, especially if we are writers, by the imposition of a narrative line upon disparate images, by the ideas with which we have learned to freeze the shifting phantasmagoria, which is our actual experience. Or at least we do for a while. So this is Joan, you know, saying what the ideal is and then sort of shifting into the reality. I am talking here about a time when I began to doubt the premises of all the stories I had ever told myself, a common condition, but one I found troubling. I suppose this period began around 1966 and continued until 1971. During those five years, I appeared on the face of it, a competent enough member of some community or another, a signer of contracts and air travel cards, a citizen, I wrote a couple of times a month for one magazine or another, published two books, worked on several motion pictures, participated in the paranoia of the time, in the raising of a small child, and in the entertainment of large numbers of people passing through my house, made gingham curtains for spare bedrooms, remembered to ask agents if any reduction of points would be pari passu with the financing studio, put lentils to soak on Saturday night for lentil soup on Sunday, made quarterly FICA payments, and renewed my driver's license on time, missing on the written examination only the question about the financial responsibility of California drivers. Okay, so I read uh, that portion was a little bit more lengthy than some quotes I read, but I think it's important um, to, first of all, to just kind of glory in the prose, but now we're gonna pick apart a little bit why the prose is unique and why it is so powerful. I mentioned in the first segment that um, one of the things I think she does so incredibly well is create this kind of bridge for the reader. So if you are someone who can relate to any one of these things, if you have been um, you know, a signer of contracts or an air traveler, I don't know what an air traveler card is, happily um, I did not ever have to have, have one of those, um, but, but she was a citizen. We are all citizens of some country or another. Um, we, but, but then she does this cool thing where Yes, maybe some of us um, have put out lentils for lentil soup, although it's kind of a flex on the part of her. I mean, I know that in that era, you know, there weren't quite as many kind of ready-made meals and ready-made curtains and whatnot. You couldn't just dash down to Target. But um, Joan is, it, there's a subtle, um, you know, she is accused of elitism and there is some of that, but I like to think most of what I feel is it's kind of aspirational. You know, I wish that I were someone, I do so. I like to think I'm fairly crafty, um, but there is this sense of, of her as being incredibly deft. You know, she's 
sewing gorgeous gingham curtains for the spare bedroom, which, you know, is connoting the fact that she is has so many people over and she's, um, you know, taking such good care of them that she's providing them these, um, you know, these pretty gingham uh, uh, curtains. So th there's a certain sort of competency that she is sort of elevating the domestic to a level that actually very much appeals to me. I think um, it appeals to a lot of women, as long as it doesn't sound like total bullshit or you're not kind of actually measuring yourself against her, which I actually have done that a little bit too, and that's not so fun. Um, I really, at one point, wanted to look at her um, her menus, and then I was like, no, that'll just bum me out because I do a lot of like reheating when I'm entertaining. But um, this idea of, of her as being kind of this paragon of domesticity is impressive, but it also allows us to understand very clearly what her life is about. What she does in such a genius way here, though, is she then sort of feathers all of these domestic things that are that are at least imaginable into stuff that is really difficult for us to imagine. For example, um, I have no idea. I don't know what an air travel card is, but I imagine for a lot of readers that was sort of a sophisticated thing to have. It means she was traveling a lot um, and writing. You know, she says a couple times a month for one magazine or another. I mean, she's writing for the Saturday Evening Post and for Life. Like, she has this incredibly um, well-developed career. She'd been at Vogue for seven years. So to sort of say these kind of off-the-cuff things, in some ways it, it, it sounds like humility, but it's also this beautiful kind of feathering in of, like, she's so accomplished that she's not even needing to flex about her, her writing career. Um, she worked on several motion pictures. I mean, just kind of says that as if everyone's working on motion pictures. But then insert something like participated in the paranoia of the time, which is this giant kind of slightly more vague and eerie and kind of haunting thing. So Didion, one of the, the, the things that will become clearer in the second and third chunks of this lecture is the way that, that she she'll often have lists of things and many of them are relatable. And then there will be something that is so haunting and kind of creepy and spooky that as a reader, you're like, oh my God, like this is, the, you finish a paragraph with, with a sense of unease. That's exactly what she is feeling and what she wants you to feel. Um, I liked the part about um, how she, where is that part? Oh, she remembered to ask agents if any reduction of points would be pari passu with the financing studio. I mean, I love that because I was like, wow, I mean, there's a term of art and not only is it a term of art, it's one, it's a term of art simply being language that is specific to a, um, to an industry um, or, or an occupation or a hobby or whatever, um, like salvaging is a, is a term of art for sewing. So, but this is a term of art that has to do with the uh, entertainment business. But what's amazing is she's flattering the reader by saying, um, if any reduction of points would be pari passu with the financing studio, comma, put lentils to soak. I mean, it's it's so it's it's such a great way to flatter your reader because she's like everybody puts lentils to soak on a Saturday night for Sunday, but it, and the assumption then is like you are someone who is sophisticated enough as a reader that you'll understand this this phrase pari passu. I have no idea what that is um, in Latin. You know, it, it, it's this very flattering thing. So um, when I work with with editing clients and, and they're they're um, wanting to explain everything, you know, they'll, they'll say like, you know, the important Los Angeles restaurant, you know, Spago 
I'm like, no, no, if you just put Spago, people will feel flattered, even if they don't quite know what it is, they'll be able to tell that it's a fancy restaurant from the context of whatever it is you're writing. But if you don't explain, you're giving the reader credit enough to either figure it out or to know it already. So she does this beautiful job of building this bridge. The reader feels, um, you know, if, if you haven't ever soaked lentils, I'm gonna raise my hand and say I'm not. I have uh, opened cans of lentils. I have cooked them on the stovetop. I've never soaked them overnight. Um, but, but you have this sense of if that's possible, then maybe I can also be writing for a magazine, work on pictures and negotiate with the entertainment industry. So she, she right on this very first page is creating herself as someone who is both totally accessible to us, totally knowable and, and relatable, and then also someone who is just totally out of our league, but also someone who can trust who we can trust. Um, and uh, let's see, part of the reason why we can trust her is this incredible vulnerability that she uh, that she shows. So um, I'm, we're gonna get to that vulnerability in one minute, but I wanna dig a little deeper into this idea of this narrative that she was wanting to put together. So at, at the end of that first paragraph, she talks about how a writer's job and how everyone's sort of uh, desire is, is to, to, to think of things in narratives that, that teach a lesson or that have some sort of logic at a minimum. So on the next page here, on page 13, in what would probably be the middle of my life, I wanted to still believe in the narrative and in the narrative's intelligibility. But to know that one could change the sense with every cut was to begin to perceive the experience as rather more electrical than ethical. So you have this sense of, of, of her, uh, th this idea of, of once she is inside and she is a writer and she is creating movies she, and she's an expert at narrative, she begins to understand that when, you, when you're shaping the narrative, then the, the ethics can sometimes go out the window. Here it is, down at the bottom here on page 13. Certain of these images did not fit into any narrative I knew. So again, she's talking about all that we can think of the ones in the from last time, the, the woman, um, you know, the man with the candy leading the child into the sea, uh, the, the woman on the 16th floor. None of those fit into any narratives that, that Didion can offer up to us. Um, I have kind of this, this uh, theory that I have developed that is not, I don't think it's just mine, but this idea, um, one of the important things that was happening at the end of the 60s, of course, was you had this time of incredible social upheaval, largely because of uh, our, our uh, involvement in the Vietnam War. So, you know, you have this idea of kind of free love and this hippie, um, you know, the, the, this real sort of experiment in women's liberation and sexual liberation and a real move away from some of our puritanical roots, which I have real problems with. Um, toward like a more open and more free and more egalitarian and more full of love kind of society. And then because of the divisions uh, in, in with the Nixon era and with the Vietnam War, there was a very serious cultural division. So you have a fragmentation in, in the political structure that is sort of, um, you know, coloring so much of what was happening. You also have an active war where young people who are, are the source of this kind of, a lot of the hippie movement and a lot of this optimism were being drafted into a war that, that, was, a, that was a terrible idea. Uh, and, and that sort of very, very, for a lot of people seemed like a terrible idea. Um, and the, the, the one important thing, and, and this, is, this is my theory, 
um, is that this was, it was the first televised war. So Vietnam is kind of famously the first televised war. And, and I think that um, one of the things that's happening with Didion is, you know, she's born in 49. I'm sure that she had television, but this, this proliferation of television news and this idea of having much more access to visual violence, I think um, my sense is that with the growth of media and with the invasion of television into homes, and, and also with, with Didion just coming into her adulthood, that, that there would have been, um, you know, her exposure to a lot of this violence and a lot of this nonsensical, uh, you know, these murder sprees and these serial murders and a lot of what is happening in large part um, was more visible because it was all being televised. Certainly Vietnam and, and all of the attending stress and division that came with that was impacted by, by the fact that everyone had access to these visuals. Um, it's interesting to me too, that this new journalism comes at a time when, when television became much more accessible and people were able to see things with their own eyes. So you, you start to wonder if maybe the idea of kind of the, the invisible journalist who is, is sort of, or like the newsreel before the movie, that's giving some objective truth of history and news, you kind of wonder if that's breaking down uh, because people are able to see what they're seeing. You know, they're able to see evidence of something that might not, as she says, fit into a narrative. Okay, so um, I want to very quickly run through the structure of this story. It's not a story, it's, a, it's an essay. So again, we're thinking about fragmentation here and her desire to fit things into a narrative. So the first chunk of this, and they are numbered. So you have the White Album. Uh, this is from 68 to 71 are the years that she's talking about here. You know what? I said 78 earlier. That, that was not correct um, because this came out in 1972. So um, all of this happened between 66 and 71. So these numbered sections are so interesting to look at because the numbers don't really make much sense, which again is an example of the way that, that the organizational schema for this book is really breaking down in a way that is a perfect example of how order and a narrative is not, uh, it's just not possible. Okay, so we have this first section where Didion is named, you know, godparents and all these things. And we find out later in an incredible echo that she and Roman Polanski are godparents to the same child. She's also named, um, which this is that another example of that incredible thing where she um, makes you feel like you're like, oh, I'm a godparent to a couple of kids. And then in the next breath, she's saying that she was also named one of the LA Women of the Year for, I believe for 1970. So you have this sense of her as, as being very relatable and then having access to a realm that is just not, uh, you know, not everyone's world. So that first section is about her being named and it's about this desire for narration. It's relatively long. Then we get to section two um, and we it's all about the Roman Navarro murder, but it has a lot to do with her home as well. There's that beautiful part where she, um, at her mother-in-law's house in Connecticut, there's a, there's a thing about strangers, and, but then how in her neighborhood, they do not in fact welcome the stranger who arrives at the door. We're gonna take a, a, a closer look at that. Uh, in section three, after the Navarro murders where we actually have a little transcript. So again, part of this fragmentation is including, um, you know, Q&A that is coming from the murders of Ramon Navarro. Um, we have the little uh, thing that is hanging on her mother-in-law's like a little verbatim italicized poem 
of the of the hanging on her mother-in-law's thing. We have her packing list. We have all of these fragments that she is collecting and incorporating into this attempt at a narrative. Okay, and then in section three, we talk about the doors. So then there's quite a bit here about the doors. Section four, um, it has to do with a whole slew of people where we talk about Janis Joplin, David Hockney, the Living Theater at USC, John and Michelle Phillips, which I thought that was so interesting because they're from the Mamas and the Papas. They're the parents of China Phillips. Um, but it's interesting because they're the Mamas and the Papas, which she doesn't mention. But what she talks about is the two of them being in a limousine on the way to the hospital, essentially to become parents. So there's this idea of performance, there's this idea of, of these rock and rollers, you know, beginning families, which you have a feeling is not going to end particularly well. Um, but one thing in terms of, of, of sort of fragmentation and, and entropy here is that the section that has all of those different people in it is only two pages long. It's a very short section. Um, and then five, um, in section five, we have a long thing about uh, QEP Newton and the Black Panthers. We go on. Um, then we have section six, which is about Eldridge Cleaver, another member of the Black Panthers, I'm fairly certain. And then we come to one of my closest, um, my closest, one of my favorite parts of the section, um, which is section seven, that is her packing list. So this is one of these very famous um, things that people like to pull out about Didion. Um, I, I, we're not gonna look at it very closely. Oh, but for those of you who are on the YouTube channel, you can see that I am wearing what could be a Danskin leotard. I, it's exactly like the Danskin leotards I had um, a little bit later in the 70s, a little more in the disco era, but um, everybody had, you know, these sort of, um, it was, what was this called? Not spandex back then, it was like rayon or something. Um, this kind of fabric, and then with a little bit of ruching, you know, to, to, to sort of give you, give you some shape. And then if you were lucky, you had a Danskin wraparound skirt. So she would bring her two jerseys or leotards, um, one sweater, and then um, I love this idea here of having a leotard and the stockings so she could communicate with both sides of the culture. So she would be wearing her pantyhose um, stockings, she would be wearing her stockings, but she also would have on a leotard. So she could be the hippie with the leotard and also be, um, you know, kind of this waspy, um, you know, upper crust scarfed, uh, you know, with a scarf, wearing a scarf uh, and, and her pantyhose. Also, of course, bourbon was in there. Also, of course, uh, cigarettes. So, I, and I think we all esteem to the kind of order of, of a packing list that is inside your armoire that, that, that really would help you have some sort of order in a life that is profoundly disordered. Um, and, and when I say disordered, I don't just mean that she's traveling a lot, which is also kind of a flex on, on the part of Joan here, but, but her life is profoundly disordered in that she's having like very serious psychological breakdowns at this point, which she is detailing for us. Okay, then um, we move on to part eight, which is her driving, it's very short. She's driving a um, rental car and thinking about Ezra Pound. In part nine, we have a part about the San Francisco state protests and the media. In 10, we hear about the Manson murders for the first time. In 11, we then go a little bit more fine grain on those and we talk about Linda Kasabian. I have the most insane photos of Linda Kasabian um, on her way to do her, um, to do her uh, testimony. And she's wearing, it's amazing. In one dress, she's wearing the dress that I think that Joan Didion probably bought for her at iMagnon. 
but they're also ones where she's wearing the Mexican smock dresses that are also alluded to. So um, I have a whole a whole section in my uh, images of Linda Kasabian wearing all of these different dresses. Oh, wait, and in fact, number 12, so we have three different sections that have to do with Linda Kasabian and the Manson murders, which the reason why that's remarkable is because, you know, we had the one section before with lots of high flyers in it. And then we have these three separate sections, two of which have to do with Linda Kasabian, um, you know, and what she's wearing in prison and what they're discussing, which is not the 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 murders. And then this idea of what she's going to wear to the um, to, to the to the uh, to the actual testimony that she's going to give. So the, the reason I'm belaboring this is because you would want someone who is reporting about the Manson murders to be able to speak about like, why did this happen? Like what, first of all, what happened? And then why did it happen? Sort of what, like take us, like show us something or like what can we learn from it or what came out of it? And in fact, you know, this this focus on Linda Kasabian and, and sort of the absurdity of, of her viewpoint and of her focus after these murders, speaks to this idea of, of entropy, of things, of chaos and disorder, and, and the inability to create a narrative. So we have three more sections. Um, the section 13 is when she's checking out of the motel and she has that weird interaction with the Mormon guy um, who is like, how can you not be Mormon because then you wouldn't be going to your to heaven with your family, all dressed the same or whatever. Um, you know, it's, it's this profound, um, look at the human condition and sort of what lengths people will go to in order to avoid uncertainty and um, a lack of narrative. I mean, talk about a, a compelling narrative. Um, in the four, in this 14th section, she talks about how they've sort of pinpointed this disorder that they thought was ocular. They thought it was ophthalmological. And it turns out that it has to do with her entire central nervous system, which I think we can read as this incredible... Um, again, a fractal, we can read this as, as evidence of the fact that this is not, this whole entire collection is not to do with like a certain vision on like, like a, a viewpoint and a, and a vision of an event. It in fact has to do with the dysfunction of the entire central nervous system of the country, of being human, of, you know, the justice system, of violence, of all of these different things. So it's just masterful. If you're reading any chunk of this and you're like, wait, what? Like, what are we doing here? If you can just take a tiny step back and think about some of these larger issues, my, my bet is that Joan is doing something, in fact, very, very intelligent. And then in the very last section, number 15, she sort of sums this all up. But the reason why I wanted to walk through this structure is simply to show how um, how good she is at, at, at um, capturing a, a much larger idea, in this case, this fragmentation and this inability to fit things into a handy, consoling, instructive narrative. She's not doing it. And not only is she not able to do it, and she's talking about the process of not being able to do it, but she's she's literally showing us. Um, and, and my sense is that for, for many of you who have read this, and maybe you're longtime readers of this, maybe you're returning to it, um, there's something very compelling and something very uh, uh, sort of familiar and, and, and um, attractive and, and interesting about all of these different anecdotes. And yet, when you try to, you know, look again at what her sort of purpose is here, it's really disheartening, which again is exactly what she wants us to, to know or to, to, to feel. 
I am going to touch on just one of the aspects of what I think makes Didion's prose so incredibly identifiable. And uh, then we're going to move on uh, in this third section of this lecture to talk about some of the other aspects of her prose that are so noteworthy. Okay, so one of the things that we've already begun to talk about a little bit, but I want to move into more deeply, is this idea of vulnerability, this idea of self-exposure. So Didion, um, it's so interesting to me. The, the one book that I wrote was a memoir, and it happened to be about sex. And it's funny because people would be like, how could you include all that stuff? And, and the one thing to remember when someone is writing an essay collection in the style of this new journalism or when they're writing a memoir is that they have way more control than you think. I mean, none of these is actually a tell-all. They're just not. You know, you have control. And what you are... Um, what you are showing to the reader is often very calculated and everyone has, you know, certain things they feel totally comfortable sharing and things that they do not feel comfortable sharing. In the case of Didion, it is an, a masterclass in showing vulnerability. So one of the things that I tell um, writing students, which was something that I learned in, in, my, um, in my three quarters of an MFA program, is that if you want uh, your reader to like your character, and this goes for fiction and nonfiction as well. Um, if you want them to like your reader, you don't show them the strengths of your reader, I mean, of your character. You show the reader the vulnerability of your character. So in this case, again, this is a masterclass of Joan Didion showing her vulnerability to her readers. So we're going to look at page 14. Oh, she's talking about all these images like Kennedy's death and, um, uh, 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 you know, watching the funeral on the veranda at the Royal Hawaiian. She's talking about the first reports from my life. So she, she has all of these different images that are not cohering. They're not coming together for her. And then there's a, a space break and we have this another flash cut. This is on the top of page 14. Um, and then a little bit further down, so this is a report that is in italics and it's in quotations. So it is set off again. This is one of those, it's kind of a pastiche. It's like a like a collage. Um, this is a, an italicized and in quotations report that we are hearing. And we don't know who it is concerning, which is, um, it's again, a, a very good example of this kind of fragmentation. The reader is a little off kilter, a little, um, you know, unsettled because we don't know who the subject of this is. But in it, so this is from uh, June and she actually doesn't give us the year, which is interesting. A little further down though, on page 14, it says, the Rorschach record is interpreted as describing a personality and process of deterioration with abundant signs of failing defenses and increasing inability of the ego to mediate the world of reality and to cope with normal stress. Emotionally, patient has alienated herself almost entirely from the world of other human beings. Her fantasy life appears to have been virtually completely preempted by primitive, regressive, libidinal preoccupations, many of which are distorted and bizarre. So, I mean, talk about making yourself vulnerable. And then, of course, I think the first, the minute you see um, the, 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 the pronoun that is describing her as, um, as female, you do get a sense that this is probably Joan, you know, talking about herself. And in fact, when you zip right across the page after the end of this lengthy report, I mean, it goes on and on, you know, to have an ego that's entirely in dissolution and to have, um, you know, your, your, uh, 
her fantasy life is replaced by um, primitive, regressive, libidinal preoccupations, many of which are distorted and bizarre. Imagine reading this about yourself. It, you know, and this is a professional who is making this, this um, you know, sort of proclamation about you. It's this very weird, talk about a weird narrative. It's this clinical sort of, um, very sort of weirdly scientific, but also strange, talk about phantasmagoric um, kind of a report. And then right across the page, at the right after this, she says, the patient to whom this psychiatric report refers is me. The tests mentioned, the Rorschach, the thematic apperception test, the sentence completion test, and the Minnesota multifacet personality test, sorry, index, were administered privately in the outpatient psychiatric clinic at St. John's Hospital in Santa Monica in the summer of 1968, shortly after I suffered the attack of vertigo and nausea mentioned in the first sentence, and shortly before I was named a Los Angeles Times Woman of the Year. By way of comment, I offer only that an attack of vertigo and nausea does not now seem to me like an inappropriate response to the summer of 1968. I mean, this is masterful prose. We're going to talk a little bit in this next section, in the third section, about this repetition and this kind of refrain. But you have this beautiful echoing here uh, of, um, of a couple of the different things from before, that attack of nausea and vertigo that we heard about before. And um, one thing I want to point out here too, very briefly, is the idea of journalism here. So she goes at some, she goes to some lengths here to, to give us these very um, authoritative and very specific names of all of the different tests. She says it was St. John's Hospital in Santa Monica, summer of 1968, which is the summer of love. It was a summer of huge unrest in Europe and, and a lot of sort of toppling of, of governments. Um, but then, um, so, so she has this whole, uh, like all of these facts that she is presenting to us. And that is this melding, this kind of new journalism thing. Um, and she says that these things were all paid for privately. It's like, these are disclaimers and these are the facts that are buttressing what here is, is sort of a, a journalistic report. Um, and it, it's so fascinating too that then we have the echo of the woman of the year thing. And, and to, again, to have an accolade like that, um, to be named a woman of the year, she was one of 10, but you know, still, um, it, 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 and then to understand that that person was in a state of total like ego dissolution, it, it's so powerful because you have to wonder what's happening with all the other people. I mean, if she seems so competent, which is the point at which she began the whole essay, and yet she's someone who's having bizarre and libidinal phantasmagoric, you know, kind of um, ideation, then this is someone who's really in trouble. And yet from the outside, which is the whole point of this, you, it, it's not a narrative that will cohere or make sense. Okay. So in the next session, in the final half hour, time is flying people because Joan has so much to say. Um, in the last section, we are going to be talking uh, a little bit more um, seriously about what makes the prose as incredible as it is. So join us for the third segment of this incredible, uh, this incredible lecture um, on Joan Didion's The White Outlaw.